0: breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. My name is John McCaskill, and I'm here with my guest, Barry Zwarestien. Barry is a former Rhodesian combat medic. He was involved in the Rhodesian Bush War and then after the war, spent a few years working in South Africa before moving to Australia and then on to England, where he attempted to mountain bike from Great Britain to Israel. But he ended up flying there instead and spent four years developing the British Council English Language Center. While living there, he developed a passion for marathon running, which developed into ultra marathon running. And I have to say, normally during a, a bio, I don't interject here, but I have to say this I was born in South Africa, where one of the f- most famous ultra marathons is, it's the Comrades Marathon. And I remember when I was only seven and I moved to the States, uh, I had watched that for several years already and I remember watching Bruce Fordyce win that multiple times and telling my my dad one day I would run that race, uh, which I haven't done. And most likely it's not gonna be in the cards. I'm 42 years old and my body is a little bent and broken, but most likely not gonna happen. But uh, (laughs) getting, getting back to your bio, Barry, Barry uh, returned to, to Australia in 2000 and has been there since. So why am I interviewing Barry? Not because of his running background, but because of his being an avid practitioner of mindfulness and meditation. He's spent 47 years of his life meditating. He's also written two books about the complexities and the stress of military transition, which is a global stressor for the military, regardless of which country you transition from the military. And he's got one more book coming out, and we're going to talk about that too. So we're gonna learn a lot more about Barry, his time in Rhodesia, South Africa, Australia, England, and Israel, and wherever else in the world you've been, Barry. We're gonna learn about your books, your work in the mindfulness arena, and that's all here on today's episode of the Veteran's Path Podcast. Barry, welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Yeah, many thanks, John, for having me on the show and just giving me the opportunity just to share my journey with you.
0: Absolutely, great to finally talk with you. Barry and I have been communicating back and forth on LinkedIn, text, uh, email. I've got his books. He sent me an electronic <laughs> version of his books. We've been talking for a while now, and this is actually the first time we've corresponded with voice, so it's great to great to hear you actually sound a lot like my dad my dad still has the south african <laughs> accent i mean it could be my dad on the other end of this line so so what time uh, is it there it's uh 8, 8 a.m uh in the
1: morning. so it's um 8 a.m in the morning in, in
0: sydney australia on yeah on the 22nd okay so yeah australia how are you how are you doing with uh, the fires and everything and how, how is that affecting you and your your friends and family there
1: look where we are we live on the edge of a national park and we're quite lucky in that there's been no outbreak of fires in our area but the smoke um, and the pollution has been quite prolific um, so we've got away quite lightly whereas um, you know huge areas of Australia are just under emergency um situations at the moment in terms of loss millions of species of animals have died it's so um, sad. oh it's, it's it's been a nightmare, John, and um, I don't think we've had something as severe in the history of Australia.
0: Well, I mean, living in the States, uh, I mean, quite honestly, we, we don't hear a lot about Australia in the news. Um, but yeah. even driving on the highway here in Norfolk, Virginia, yesterday, there was a sign that says, help Australia. And I've never yeah. seen that. So, I mean, that, that speaks volumes as to what's going on there. That One, we're, speak, we're seeing it in the news daily now hearing about it in the news daily and and it's even to the local level it's on a local billboard uh for what yeah. you guys have going on there it's it's just a terrible terrible tragedy so uh yeah. our hearts and minds from the states are with you guys over there uh as as you guys continue to uh deal with that situation so yeah thanks thanks John and we're grateful for all the support that's been um, coming in yeah yeah well uh, it's a, it's certainly the least we can do from our end we could do more. So uh, before we get into our show, uh, what I'm trying to do is start every show by letting our listeners know what we do at Veterans Path and then why we are doing this podcast. Not this episode in particular, but just this podcast in general. Veterans yep. Path, what we do is we're, we're introducing veterans to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path, P-A-T-H, peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor, comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of and attendance at our retreats while simultaneously reducing the stigma around seeking mental health support. Listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. So that all said, again, something that I'm starting every kind of show with uh, is some basic scene setter questions. Get Get the audience to know you a little bit better than what I introduced you I mean I told I told where you grew up I told that you were a com, combat medic in Rhodesia yeah. and everything else there but what else would you like our listeners to know about you Barry
1: you know I think the thing I actually haven't really ever mentioned in my bio um, was my process of learning as a psychologist you know I, I fell into psychology I, I was a teacher for ten years and then realized I probably just stepped into the wrong profession. It wasn't there was not a very good fit between me and the club. And after becoming a psychologist and contracting with the veteran services here um, in 2001, you know, I went into working with veterans and I only work outside of my work within a school as a psychologist. I only take referrals in my private practice from my veteran organization and I began figuring that um, everything in the basket was just clearly resolved. And I started to approach my work with veterans in that way. And it took about two years when the veteran was talking to me, when I realized that, um, you know, I actually needed to self-reflect that perhaps I I hadn't left my own background and my own experiences at war as intact as I thought I had. And at that point, I really began to question as well, what could i do to become better and more able to journey with the people i was sitting with into the territories they were struggling to enter and i think at that point i began a journey of i think greater humility less ego and more of a willingness to step beyond the defined territory of the tools i was using as a psychologist and learning to think more and find better ways to go into situations that understandably people were avoidant of walking towards because of the pain. And now I spend a lot of time and I think my first book really was to help psychologists to understand that they have to earn the right uh, for a veteran to enter their space and to share their story. And part of earning that right was to really spend time understanding the territory of the veteran, the language of the veteran and the experiences of veteran. You don't have to be a veteran or a combat veteran to understand that. That just takes time and a willingness to enter the territory of the person you're sitting with. And the book was also to give them the language to start to use language that's consistent with the background of veterans. So a lot of my journey has been to self-reflect on myself as a human being because I think quality of presence in this work is critical, and two, to have a critical self-reflection on the tools and the modalities we bring into the situations where we try to create healing. Wow. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I said this a few times in the podcast, uh, or not this yeah. particular episode, but as people introduce themselves, I mean, this is all uh, really Great to unpack here as I get to know you a little bit better, Barry. And it's, it's always interesting to get to know someone on the podcast and know that yeah. afterwards, <laughs> other people are going to be listening to me getting to know you. So it's it's great that okay. uh, you've got such a, an incredible, uh, incredibly interesting background. And um, one thing that uh, I want to touch on is you uh, were in South Africa. You went to the University of Cape Town, same school my father went to and graduated. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and when uh, my—so I'm one of five children, three older sisters yeah. and a younger brother. And yeah. when my brother was, uh, I don't know, four and I was I had just turned seven, my parents yeah. picked us up from South Africa and moved us to the States. And one of the reasons, ironically, that they moved us was to avoid conscription. And yes. the the reverse happened for you. Basically, you were in South Africa— but you returned to Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, uh, maybe correct. not at the time, but uh, but it's now Zimbabwe for our listeners, if they don't know yeah. that, that region of the world. Um, you returned to Rhodesia actually to serve your commitment. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that that is correct, John. Um, I, unlike, well, many, many Rhodesians would go in straight after school. So you had... 17- and 18-year-olds fighting an extremely violent and aggressive bush war. Um, I went to university for four years, so I did a degree, and then I went to, as you, as you know, at Cape Town University and did a postgraduate diploma and, in high school teaching. I became an English teacher, which was kind of quite odd because I have a few learning issues which spill over into um, I can't really spell very well, and teaching was probably the worst thing for me to go into. Then I got conscripted. Um, so my call up came and I had a choice. I was either not going to go back, in which case I could never re enter my country, or I was going to go back and do my national service. So I decided that, um, you know, I'm a Rhodesian, it's in my blood, it's in my bones. It's almost a part of my DNA. I'm a first generation Rhodesian or a Southern Rhodesian when I first uh, when I was born. And I went back and Interestingly enough, at that time, I was already, I'd been meditating for probably about three years. Um, I was a vegetarian. You know, I made a decision that, you know, I wanted to try living without having to eat animals. I think part of that came from my final years of school in the early 70s, where they took us to an abattoir, which in the good old days was quite an interesting experience. And
0: Uh, I'll be honest, I'm going to have to admit my ignorance. I don't
1: even know what that is. Uh, a vegetarian or an abattoir? <laughs> uh,
0: I do know what a vegetarian is. I'm not, I'm not that ignorant. <laughs> the abattoir, I, I, I don't know what that is. Uh,
1: um, I don't know what you call them. You know where you take animals to be killed? We call them abattoirs, and in those days, they used retractable bolts to kill cattle and electric clamps to kill the pigs. And it was quite a horrific experience for me. And so by the time I arrived in Rhodesia to do my military service... Um, Yeah, I I was a vegetarian, which was quite unusual. And so I did my basic training. And then um, I decided I'd go for officer's course, which again, (laughs) was a profound lack of judgment. Because (laughs) uh, one of the other offshoots of my learning issues is literally zero sense of direction. I mean, I will walk in a building, come out and not know whether to turn left or right. I often say to my wife that when I'm in a situation and I come out of it, God rearranges the world in a completely different way. And so, as an officer trying to lead men, it would have been an incredible joke. But fortunately, <laughs> on the final day, on the final day of the selection, the three-day selection, um, I'd been a gymnast for many years, and you know, I had a few injuries, um, dislocating shoulder um, from from gymnastics, and I'd gone up an obstacle, and the next thing, I was flat on my back with a dislocated shoulder. So wow. that took me up. With that, yeah. But you know, there's always a there's always a wisdom in what the universe throws at you. <laughs> And, and and a wisdom for the men that I may have had to lead. And so my decision after that was actually to become a medic. And so the medic training in Rhodesia at that time was probably one of the best in the world. It was three very, very intense months with um, I think a 70 or 80% pass rate, otherwise you were thrown out. And we were equipped to do everything from drips, drugs, cut downs, um, administer drugs from morphine, pethidine, hydrocortisones, um, there was nothing we couldn't do. And eventually, after I'd completed the medical course, they allocated um, a group of us to a place called Wanky, which was the coal mining town. And I remember we did a gymnastics display. My, the first team did a gymnastics display there, and I ended up in hospital with a allergy to coal dust. So I pointed out to them that um, this was not going to work. And they said, well, there's a place called Inyanga, which was on... The border of mozambique and would i be willing to go there and i went yeah i really like um heavily forested areas with very steep inclines and medics with my training were actually supposed to be in mi rooms but four of us or five of us arrived at um at our independent company there and we were immediately allocated into sticks not the mi room so we were fully operational so I was given the three guys: a stick leader, a MAG gunner, a rifleman, and myself. I I loaded. I think the picture I sent you, you'll see, I'm literally loaded up with drips and drugs and all the usual military paraphernalia. And off we went for um, seven months. So wow. <laughs> I remember, I remember that you know, three months of um, training as a medic, your situational awareness shifts because you're not in the territory and I remember the first couple of weeks um, really having to refine and look at how I worked within the territory. And in Rhodesia, the standard operation, operational modality was 4 man sticks. so whereas what was for many military organizations a special force um, way of operating was normal operating protocols for us. And we worked in territories where terrorists walked in groups of 30 to 300. <laughs> so wow you know you, you get imagine overwhelmed for, very quickly um overwhelmed and i think you know you you'd have to be constantly hypervigilant so it was an unusual war and it was a very interesting war yeah
0: yeah so once once you had gotten back and you served your obligation how how long was that obligation
1: so it was 13 months for me and then they extended it Um, But at that point, I had um, arranged to go back to the University of Cape Town, and I did a specialist diploma because I'd realized that I was never, ever going to be a high school teacher. I mean, I I disliked school immensely. All I did was play sport and just scrape through. And in in this age and day, I I would not even have got into university. Um, So I left the military and then the war continued. And then we actually lost the war. I guess we ran out of ammunition was putting it crudely. And Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, and then Zimbabwe, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. And so after leaving in 1977, um, I never actually returned. That was the last of my time in Rhodesia.
0: So you went? 1977. Actually, that was
1: the year I was born. You, you went. Did you go to South Africa at that point? Yeah. Okay. I was in South Africa, and then Uh, uh, then, um, yeah, I think in many ways, post-war, I did what a lot of men did, especially in the Vietnam era, Rhodesian Bush War era, which we kind of overlapped each other. Um, We lived a life of fairly disruptive chaos and change. (laughs) um you know john there was no awareness yeah yeah and there was no awareness of um, trauma or operational impact or transitional challenges there was nothing and so two weeks after i walked out of seven months of operating in the bush um, i was at the university of cape town waking up 25 30 times a night Um, i had migraine headaches which i never suffer from and i had ongoing body aches and pains for about three months. I had no idea that those were in fact connected to um, my time on operations.
0: And then at what point did you realize, I guess, that what you were experiencing was directly tied to what you experienced in the bush?
1: You know, John, I didn't for... 20 or 30 years, I had, I didn't even go back address or talk about my time in the Rhodesian Bush war. It, it just shifted into the background. And in a way, it was probably only about 14 years ago, um, two years into working as a psychologist with veterans, that I started to self reflect on the fact that perhaps um, I didn't come out as intact as I thought I did. I mean, I knew that um, I'd watch a war movie, and there were parts that would leave me tearful, or parts that would leave me feeling quite numbed out. But I had no awareness. There was nothing that connected that time to impact. There was no knowledge. There was no feedback.
0: Yeah, and I guess I guess there's no jumping on Google and, and asking the Google machine what's going on with you. It's it's, uh, no. it's what's in books, and you know what you hear by word of mouth, and uh, and. Yeah. I guess research, but at the time you're not doing research. You're, I mean, you're you're going yeah. to school, um, no. and, and you're not focused on what's wrong with you. You're just experiencing it, and living
1: through it. So correct. And, you uh, know, a lot of the guys joined in post war uh, tended to down regulate and get back in their bodies through alcohol and drugs, and, and especially alcohol yeah um so you know the drinking becomes the issue, but you don't really know why you're drinking. you're just drinking because you know you're tense you're reactive, you're uptight, you're not sleeping,
0: and I think that's uh i mean even what people do today uh you know yeah. i mean sure. whether it's coming back from combat or it's experiencing a uh a trauma in your family or uh, you know, a right. car wreck that's that's uh the drug of choice for many. To, to yes. deal, and they, and they don't even realize the physiology behind, you know, why they're they're having those cravings or or what what they're doing to their body with those no, with they're, those they're, uh, drugs. Um, so yeah. now you're in South Africa, 1977. What took you from South Africa to Australia, then on to Britain, and then on
1: to Israel? You know the, I've often self-reflected on why it was my first partner at the time, why we walked into the embassy at Cape Town, the Australian embassy and decided to go to Australia in, in 1980. Um, you know, John, I still don't know what would make what made us do it because we had very little money. I was a teacher and teachers were not in demand. I had no friends and I had no family in Australia. Um, I, I have no idea, I think It was part of a restlessness that drove me into continents, that drove me through endless change. It was part of myself that was quite unresolved and pushing against who I was and by constantly creating change. And I think ultramarathon running was part of that, that drive to change, the drive to move, the drive to leave where I was, the drive to push against the wall of long distance running. Those were those things that seemed to heal a part of myself. But in fact, they did and they also didn't because as Sandy once said to me, you know, I think perhaps you're running away from dealing with things that you should be looking at.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, physically uh, or, or rather uh, metaphorically and quite literally. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to get into the running and how that's tied to mindfulness, um, and, yeah. and quite honestly, what you just said there, and that it was a way of running away from your pain uh, and, and some of the stuff that you had experienced in the past. I want to get into the, the mountain bike trip that ended up not com- being complete. <laughs> but before we get into anything further, I just want to take a quick yeah. break here, and then we'll put in a plug for our sponsors who directly support Veterans Path. All right, welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with former Rhodesian combat medic turned mindfulness practitioner and military transition expert, Barry Zwarestine. I pronounced that wrong when we first started, so hopefully I got it right that time. This (laughs) photo. We were starting to cover how you'd gotten into uh, ultra marathons, and somebody had mentioned that that was a way, or at least they felt that it was a way of you running away from your pains. And, uh, and And some of your experiences, um, can hmm. you maybe expound upon that, and how running ultra marathons is in a way a a practice of
1: mindfulness okay, you know John it 's interesting because you talked about the fact that when you were young, um, you watched comrades Marathon sure, on did. on the television. Now I first saw Comrades Marathon at my I I did my first degree in at Rhodes University in Grahamstown, and this was in 1972 or 1973. I was watching a black and white television and I saw this 84 kilometer uphill race and in those days Runners were stretched well, you know, there were not that many runners, and so they were running quite solitary. There wasn't this mass of people. And I remember looking at this and thinking, this is absolutely insane. And <laughs> I still think it's it, it is. Sat, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sat, it sat at the back of my brain. Now, when you know, I've always I've played sport all my life. So the physical aspect of my life has always been extremely important. And um when I was in israel um i just started i just started running you know i've always done a bit of running here and there, but I started running put on and so bought some fairly cheap shoes, did my first um, marathon um in a place called Tiberias um turned up for another one and um and just ran it uh it was extremely painful it's marathon but I finished and, uh very little very little <laughs> i've been running i've been running on the beach and um, so you can imagine I put myself through a lot of pain. You're like Forrest but, Gump. You just started running. Uh, yeah. yeah, stupidity. Um, <laughs> not, not a lot of insight. And, but I realized that I actually had a passion for running because when I ran, I really felt at peace. Now, you know, an aspect might have been using running to damp down on the more turbulent aspects of myself. But also a large part of it is that I just have a passion for running and I still do. So I did a couple of marathons and then I went back. Eventually um, I left Israel because as a founder member of the British Council Language Centre, after four years I'd reached, I'd felt I wanted to move beyond again the classroom as a second language teacher. I couldn't see a future for myself there because my Hebrew just wasn't good enough to study further or integrate effectively into into Israel. And I went back to South Africa Um, and eventually meandered my way back to my old university. My friends were now running the psychology department. And I said, you know, I was was really lost at that time. That relationship I was in had ended, uh, one of many. And um, I was I was feeling really lost and disconnected. And they said, look, why don't you study psychology? And I said, oh, you know, OK, I'll, I'll study psychology. Now, one of the lecturers there was a, a silver medal runner. And um, I, I immediately started thinking about comrades. And, and I said to him, you know, I really want to do comrades. And he said, well, look, I, I tell you what, I will mentor you. But the deal between you and me is that I'm not going to accept any excuse to opt out. He said, do you understand that? He said, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you feel. I'll give you a training program, and at no point am I going to ever support the fact that you are not going to do this. Wow. It was a bit of a contract with the devil, and I'm grateful (laughs) for that devil um, because, you know, the training schedule for comrades over six months, you'd be running, your training runs would be 30, 40 kilometers, and, you know, I'd be running six days a week. And so I ran and I ran and I ran. And at that point, I started learning in hindsight a lot of really powerful lessons that there was always going to be a wall and, and life has walls. And I remember getting to points where I was thinking, this is just not fun anymore. I I don't. It's it, I suppose it would be a baby infantile equivalent of your hell week where you no longer want to be there, but you have to make a choice. And that choice is not made... Based on physical capability, it's based on attitude and mental resilience. And the person that I was supported by never allowed me to give in to my my mind or to my self talk. No matter how strong I was and how fit I was becoming, I was constantly pushing against that wall of, it's not fun anymore. I'm not enjoying this. Eventually, I. I did a run two or three months before comrades, which was my first ultra marathon, which was 64 kilometers, which from our university to the nearby town, it was 32 kilometers downhill, and 32 kilometers uphill. And so I was extremely tentative when I ran this. But I knew one thing when I was running, I'd reached a point where running became a state of being. So I often likened to sitting it sitting inside my body and enjoying the journey. So it was just this moment where the world quietened down, self talk quietened down, and I was in a place of absolute peace. Even resistance became the potential for a place of centered focusedness and mindfulness, and tranquility. Now that that first run, I was quite tentative. I jogged the thirty two kilometers downhill, and then I thought, oh oh, you know, this is going to be an interesting one. <laughs> What happened was a miracle, John. I I started running, and I was really strong. And I went, well, I'm not actually tired. And I got faster and faster and faster till virtually towards the end of that race. I was sprinting, but absolutely in a state of in my body, out of my body, and effortless. It was that place of mindfulness where you suddenly click into a state of absolute being. It, It felt like that. So I flew through that in an incredible time. And then two or Running three months later, the, that, second,
0: the second, half.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that uphill, that uphill was no more strenuous than going downhill. Wow. The problem was I peaked, which I hadn't realized. And mm-hmm. comrades was going to be my experience and humility. <laughs> <laughs> so I arrived at five 30 or five o'clock in the morning. It was freezing, freezing cold. And um, my friend who had mentored me was on that race with me, and he pointed into the far distant future where the mist in the far, you could barely see the tips of the hills, and he said, that's halfway. And I remember feeling this absolute sense of hopelessness and despair. Good buddy there. Great friend. Yeah, he was. Yeah, <laughs> a great, great. But he, he grounded me. He grounded me in what was going to lie ahead. Um, he didn't create any illusions. Now, you know, I started running and then my journey in Comrades began at 64 kilometers because I wasn't in the euphoria of running. At 64 kilometers, my iliotibial completely went. Um, and so I was in absolute pain. And I had a choice at 64 kilometers. Um, and this was the uphill race. So this was all uphill. There were no, there was just ups and downs, but it was yeah. a progressive uphill race. For the and the listeners,
0: the, the comrades, yeah. one year is one way and the next year is the other way. So one year it's an uphill run and the next year it's mostly downhill. Uh, if, yeah. I, if I'm right. Right, Barry? Yeah
1: correct. Yeah. yeah, correct. And so at 64 kilometers, I hit an absolute wall. And I remember standing in the sense of this absolute despair and desperation because I'd worked so hard for this, but I was in absolute agony. And at that point, you know, I think my meditation over years had prepared me for being able to draw into an absolute stillness and a willed focus and determination in my body and my mind. And I decided that I was going to finish this, whether, whether it killed me, whether I got dragged through the race, whether I crawled through the race, but I was going to cross the finishing line within the required period of time. Because you can hit the finishing line one second after um, the, min- the maximum time rate and you don't cross, that's wow. it. And so that, those last 24 kilometers were the greatest lesson in my life Because I had to find a way of dealing with adversity and stress at indescribable levels and not give up. And in my first book, you know, I have 12 or 13 lessons um, around running at that point. Now, you know, I think a large part of that capacity to take um, tension and stress and diffuse it through my body and just flow into it was as a result of of years of, you know, extensive meditation. And, you know, when I meditate, and when I'm in my, like, often in my holidays, I sit for two and a half hours. So it's not, it's not a 20 minute sitting, it's it's a two and a half hour sitting.
0: Yeah, that's pretty intense.
1: Uh, Yeah, but no, but no longer intense, you know, it's joyful just to sit and be. Yes. And so I think my first marathon wasn't my lesson. The second marathon taught me everything I needed to know and prepared me for a large journey of disruption and change um following that and you know to this day i i I can't run long distance i mean i'll run seven to ten kilometers but often what i've used i use heat as that edge so um you know when i can find a 40 or 41 degree i'll i'll go running and that heat teaches me the heat is my mindfulness in in movement
0: so we're talking 41 degrees celsius there so yeah yeah, Uh, yeah
1: I don't know what that's in nine nine
0: plus 32 is the formula. I don't <laughs> for some reason that sticks out of my head. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, 72 plus 32 is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So, it's hot. Yeah, it's very it's hot.
1: hot. Um, but to this day, I still use heat in Israel I ran a half marathon through the desert. And I love heat because heat is the equivalent of sitting in a mindful moment. Heat forces me to focus it forces me to diffuse the tension and the impact it's having on my body and just find that place of stillness where you can embrace the heat so you know as 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 you asked how is mindfulness and running related they they are absolutely connected and you know i'm 60 i think i'm 67 now um i i still have this passion for running in nature and running in heat and being surrounded by the trees, the noise, the birds um, around me. And in those moments, I'm in a mindfulness, tranquil, and peaceful place.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So your meditation, you started actually before uh, – I'm going to have to backtrack here, and then I'll come yeah, full yeah. circle back to the running. Yeah. You, you started meditating before you ever entered the military. Uh, That's yeah. correct, right? Correct. Um, yeah,
1: 1973, then, 1973, okay. I started
0: meditating. Okay. So how did you, how did you get into that? How, how did you get introduced to it in 1973? Uh, how was it explained to you? Mm, that
1: type of I was, um, uh, I was, I was, I was a typical child of the seventies. I, I was a hippie. Okay. So, <laughs> um, I, I wasn't from the drug culture. I was from the, um, you know, the peace meditation, um, side of things. Yeah. And so, I was drawn there, there was a part of me that was absolutely drawn to, where is the place where I can start to feel who I am? Where am I from? What's my role? Um, it was a I can't really understand it. But I was either going to get driven into the drug culture, or I was going to get driven into something which facilitated an experience which was simply beyond the daily living, the daily living, the grind, the study. And so in the 70s, excuse me, in the 70s, transcendental meditation was a very big thing. And so my first um, foray into meditating was transcendental meditation. And, you know, I did that for a while. And then that slowly changed. And, you know, I'd I'd probably describe what I do. It's any meditation has a very strong mindfulness component where, you know, you sit, you stare into the darkness, um, you're attentive to sounds around you, And it just progressed from there. And I guess I've done the same kind of meditation now for probably 45 years. I think I was on TM for two years and then it just shifted and it's embedded in me. And I actually find it even harder to talk about it. It's like talking about your heartbeat. Um, It's just part of who I am. It's part part of what I do. It's almost in my cellular structure after so many years.
0: Well, I think you should consider yourself lucky in that you were introduced as early as you were and the fact that you've embraced it as much as you have so that it has actually become like part of your cellular structure um, or at least appears to have. So do you think that this uh, mindfulness meditation is becoming uh, more readily accepted in practice
1: in the recent years? Yeah. Look, meditation in the 70s was the thing the hippie freaks did. And, you know, if, and it was, if if you try to talk to people not in that journey, <coughs> they would simply just scoff at it. Um, you wouldn't, you know, even in the early days, um, you know, 16 years ago, um, neuroscience and brain-based understanding still hadn't, they were still developing. And so even introducing meditation into work with veterans, you know, you wouldn't, you'd be thinking twice about it. But as as a neuroscience of meditation developed and, and especially around mindful meditation, and what became apparent was, you know, on our chromosomes, we have these little caps called alleles. And as we age, the alleles shrink. It's like the rubber or the eraser, sorry, the eraser at the top of a pencil. It just gets shorter and shorter. And neuroscience actually showed that um, six weeks of mindful meditation, those alleles would actually change and grow. And the alleles are the things that facilitate well-being and youthfulness. So are, are
0: those the same so I, as our, our as our telomeres? Is that the, is I think they all they all it's
1: all in that same bit of territory that okay. we work, through mindful meditation. We actually create chromosomal change. So why would we not want to create chromosomal change that impacts on well-being? Now, you know, as I worked with veterans, I realized. You know mindfulness is probably the most critical aspect of being a veteran I mean what is the focus when you're stripping and assembling a weapon automatically what is the focus of a sniper when he sits for long periods just following his breath and regulating his breath right um, what is the focus the situational awareness um, on operations when we just attune to environment um, what is the awareness um, where people have innate senses of danger. They don't know why, but they know they're potentially walking into an IED or a, or an ambush. You know, in our brains, um, I don't know if you come across the concept of mirror neurons. Have you come yes, across sure. that? sure have. Yep. So, you know, that mirror neurons is that attunement within our brain that almost works at a level at which we are not consciously aware. It's where empathy comes on, it's where two brains are attuned to each other and a network of brains across the globe are attuned to each other. Now, you know, that's not um, fluffy stuff anymore. That's a reality. And so the capacity, I would imagine that the capacity to know that you're about to walk into danger is an aspect of mindful attunement linked in and interwoven with the mirror neurons in our brain. So there's something about mindfulness and attunement that is inherently embedded in the military culture.
0: I, I firmly believe that, uh, and that's uh, definitely one of the the goals of this podcast is to again make people aware of of the benefits of these practices and, and that they are life changing and life potentially life saving. But they're also, yeah. you know, something like you mentioned, they can help you to be more in tune with what it is you're doing whether it's on the battlefield, whether it's in the workspace, the office. I mean, it truly does increase your focus, increase your attention. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, well, and, and then also with your family. So I think I've discussed yeah. this in the past too, is something that uh, I, still, yeah. I still struggle with if I'm not practicing mindful meditation regularly or mindfulness practices regularly is I, I get lost in work. I get lost in worries about the past or the future, and, and I'll be sitting there really? holding my my now almost three year old daughter in my arms, or my or my ten month old son in my arms, and I won't even be paying yep. attention to that miracle that is right there with me. And uh, so yep, I, I think there's, you know, the the attunement that you mentioned in the the on the battlefield that translates to uh, being in tune with what you have going on everywhere. Um, sure. So your your background in in meditation, it uh, I think it sounds like it helped you in your time in the military when you did go back to serve your obligation in Rhodesia. Uh, obviously, yeah. it sounds like you trans- transferred that same um, meditation and mindfulness, those same lessons and experiences and physiological changes and, and feelings in running. Um, I want to know how mindfulness and meditation have helped to basically uh write or to tell the story of transition out of the military because that's what we at veterans path that's one of the stressors that we deal with is is people as they're transitioning out of the military how, yeah. how did that kind of lay the foundation for you becoming an author and now almost a, a resident expert on military transition how, how are those um, t- tied together
1: well you know the. Um, you, you, I guess. Do you use the word pull through for cleaning your weapons in yeah. your? Yeah.
0: Okay. So we do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So pull throughs clearly. You know, if you don't pull through your weapon, for those that are not aware of it, it's just dropping a weighted thing through the barrel of your weapon with a, a bit of a string and a cloth with oil in, it, and you clean the barrel of your weapon. So that hit me like a, a brick um, when I started to think about my responsibility was to enter the world of the people I was sitting with and reclaim a language that could guide them forward from their own territory. And in, so what what began to happen was as, as folk came to see me, I would start to talk to them about, you know, tell me what was the value of doing a pull through? And they go, well, you know, if you don't clean the weapon, things are going to happen. And I'd go, well, what could happen? And so you'd get an accidental discharge, an AD, you'd get a runaway gun or you'd get a stoppage. And I went, what, what are your pull-throughs now? And they go, what do you mean? And I go, what are you doing to clean your barrel out as you struggle with the impact of operations and the challenges of transitioning? So there were two bits of territory here. The one was the impact of operation, whether there were moral injuries, operational traumas, um, loss of tribes, loss of mates, grief. There were many things that um, impacted on people that were at cu- quite a complex depth. But outside of that, I wanted to give guys pull through tools that could immediately put them back in the driver's seat of their journey while they were doing the longer term work to work out and resolve the impacts of any post-traumatic stress issues or issues of grief, loss, moral injury issues, etc., and the transitioning challenges. And so part of the pull through um, tools that I would um, offer guys would be things like I'd start to talk about mindfulness training. And here in Australia, we have a program called an Australian based mindfulness training program called Smiling Mind, yes. which is is excellent. Um, and I would introduce them to that. But wording it as a pull through started to make a lot of sense. Um, combined with the mindfulness-based things, I talk about the breathing, the box breathing, for example. Um, I talk about yin yoga. And the reason I talk about yin yoga was I had an Afghanistan vet who he became a runner while we were working together. And, you know, eventually he was running 100 kilometer races. And, and he looked at me one day and he said, he said, you know, Barry, do you do any yoga? And I said, you've got to be joking. I don't even bend. I've never stretched in my life. <laughs> you know, running shoes and I'm off. I've I've never stretched pre or post a race. And he said, you need to do yin yoga. And I I really trusted him. Um, We'd run a race together um, not so many years ago. And he was on my shoulder, the young, strong bloke pushing the older bloke up and down the hills. (laughs) And I had a lot of respect for him. And so I started doing yin yoga. And yin yoga is a mindfulness-based experience because you hold a position at the extent of your comfort. So the discomfort creates a focus, but you're not moving into millions of positions. And so now I also suggest there's an app I use for yin yoga. So it's a mixture of yin yoga, mindfulness-based training, breathing, and the last thing I use is a thing called tapping. Have you, it's big in the Uh States. Have you come across tapping or EFT? That is, John, I must tell you, that's profound. I I had a, a special force bloke come into my room And I said, Tim, how are you going mate? And he goes, listen, I'm about a hundred out of 10. I said, look, I'm going to show you some pretty weird stuff. It involves a bit of mindfulness stuff, breathing and tapping on points in your body. Yes, I said, are you cool to try it? And he went, listen, Doc, he said, I'll try anything. So up he got and we worked through a series of mindfulness-based stuff, breathing-based stuff, some tapping-based stuff and some bilateral body, um, body movements. Okay. And he sat down and he sat down, a series. sorry, Siri's
0: <laughs> <laughs> telling you what what's going on. over yeah. there.
1: And he sat down and I said to him, how are you going? And he went, wow. He said, it's like it's evaporated out of my body. Wow. And that, that was an aha moment for me. And that's when the next stage of my journey into understanding the challenges of opera, operational um, journeys and transitioning things hit a new thing, because I I started to read the book by Bessel van der Kolk, which is the body keeps a score. Yeah. And, and at that point, I realized I was in the next phase of really understanding how to work with people because trauma is in the body,
0: right? And And it can can manifest itself years and years later, and people don't even uh, realize it.
1: Absolutely. So instead of just going top down, which is let's talk about your thinking, your beliefs where people are really upregulated the front of their brain which i call the op the observation post is pretty much in shutdown it doesn't work so i realized at that point it was not about having a conversation but it was a bottom up where we would work at what's in the body and you know mindfulness has a frontal cortex component because you think and you and you observe, but it's also a body-based experience because you sit in your body and you are attentive to what's going on in your body. Breathing is body-based, tapping is body-based, yoga is body-based, running is body-based. So my goal was to immediately sit down with um, veterans, whether they were dealing with transitional challenges or operational challenges, first to understand what those territories were about so to map it and and i'm still not sure it's been mapped as well as it should be and then to give people these mindfulness-based body-based tools that when they left my room after the first session they could immediately impact on their stress anxiety sleep tension it wasn't necessarily going to get to their trauma but that was something that took a bit more of a, a journey but they were in control of the upregulation and the movement of emotions and stress and upregulation within their bodies.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, and, and, and I wish I could see you taking somebody in and then working on them, both uh, on their mind and their body, and then see how, you know, basically see them as they walk in to see you and then see them as they walk out. I'm sure they're different people because I know when I, Teach uh just a, a very basic guided meditation. uh yeah. is qu- Quite honestly, sometimes I see people's eyes glaze over, and they're like, Great, this guy's going to talk to me about meditation. Um uh, yeah. Much like you uh, mentioned before, uh there's still a little bit of a stereotype uh, about meditation. And, hey, it's a little bit of a hippy dippy thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I get into the meditation, I see that face. Um, kind of melt and I can see the tension actually melting out of people right before my face. My wife, uh, she used to ask me, she would or not used to, but she asked me recently, she said, are you meditating as you guide people through these meditations? And, and at first I was, and she said, I think you're missing out on some stuff. So I, yeah. I started guiding people through the meditation, but keeping my eyes open and watching the, the yes. groups that I, that I guide through these meditations. And you can totally see, change in people as they're you know one or two minutes into this thing i mean it takes the it just takes a couple of minutes and you can see that physically yeah
1: Yeah, it does john and i I think what's helped a lot as well is to embed mindfulness and body-based journeys in operational concepts so you know when the guys come in i i talk to them about look this is the front of your brain it's where you think it's where you organize it's you plan you observe you can put structure on stuff but i said. Think about that as your OP. I said the back of your brain is is what keeps you alive in emergency situations. It processes danger, you know. It processes the part where you hit the ground, where um, a car backfires. You are in operations. You're constantly alert. I said think about that as your ambush zone. Right. I said the problem the problem with what you're struggling with at the moment is that your brain hasn't differentiated that it's left operations and you're in civilian life or you're in your transitioning process. It's still behaving as if it was in the military. And I said, so it was functional for when you were in the military, but it is dysfunctional to a large extent when you're no longer in the military. It's no longer needed. You know, there's a certain amount of vigilance that is needed um, to keep you alive in in certain situations. And so then I explained to the guys that what we need to do is we need to find pull-throughs that... Work with your ambush zone and get your claymores facing the right way. And, I, and, I, and that's why my first book was called Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing? Uh, yeah, because I, can, I went
0: to. Can we just stop for, uh, just quickly? Uh, yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I, I yeah. want to get the visual of that um, yeah. so people can really appreciate that. So, a claymore mine is a, a mine that we use in the military for ambushes. And as you're setting it up on the mine, clearly spelled out on the mine, it says this side towards enemy. And yeah. so so you want to make sure that that side, it's the the convex side that is facing towards the enemy, um, is yeah. in fact facing toward the enemy. So when uh, I love the title of your book, <laughs> Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing? So I'm sorry, I just had to provide yeah. that context for the listeners to yeah, so yeah, no. understand there.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I realized that when I started to say to guys, look, your ambush zone at the moment is running the show. Um, it's upregulating all the time you've completed the questionnaires, you can see you stressed, you can feel it in your body, you can see you anxious, you can see the things you are doing that's having a destructive impact to try and bring it back down. I said, let's try and get you into your OP. And I said, let's identify the pull throughs that you are willing to really dedicate effort, time, patience to, to learn to move and use your OP to regulate your, your ambush zone. And, you know, it's that formula I I sent you, where where we combine our OP with our ambush zone, what I call my AZ, you come to a place which I call EP, which is your embodied presence. It's that place where you sit in your OP, you connect connected emotionally, you calm, and you have a sense of mastery over your um, limbic system or your ambush zone. And by using these concepts guys went, okay, I understand. And then I'd say to him, look, think about what happens when you're in your ambush zone and your claymore and your trip flares are just going off constantly. I said, you know, you have an AD. I go, an AD in your family is where somebody triggers you, your wife triggers you, and um, you're just shooting your mouth off at her and your kids. I go, you'll have a stoppage. And I said, a stoppage is when You have your panic attacks, high levels of anxiety, depression, which completely immobilize you. And I said, and you're quite possibly going to have a runaway gun, which is where, you know, as you know, it, it just it's like an MAG. It's it just starts firing on its own volition. Right. And I said, at that point, you are completely out of control. And I go, why do you want to have an AD or stoppage or a runaway gun? It's impact on your body, on your brain and on those around you. So destructive. So how about we find a couple of pull-throughs that shift you from your ambush zone into your OP? So I'm teaching neuroscience and body-based stuff from a pure operational perspective.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great way of relating it to, well, I will say us as we are transitioning out. Because that's a language we speak, and it does. It totally relates to us and something that resonates with us. Uh, so I, I love that you're doing that. I, I think, uh, you know, I've I've read which way is your claymore facing? Um, yeah. I have not read your second, and I'm looking forward to your third book, which is uh, entitled What? Is it? Does it have anything to do with claymore?
1: Uh, no, you know, the <laughs> second one, which is that I, I decided i had enough of the claymore, um, <laughs> and I wanted to focus more on. Um, Something which was less focused on the destructive aspect of our limbic system or ambush zone, but more on the warrior Integrating with a civilian. So my second book actually was just a it's a PDF I didn't publish it because I actually wanted to just give it away um, And that one was uh, more focused on which way is your warrior facing the third book I've realized in working with veterans is increasingly over the years is how complex and multi-layered the transitioning process is. You know, John, I don't think I've seen anything yet which has mapped it out effectively. And as we know, if you go on an operation without a good map, you're gonna end up in territory you were not expecting. And I think so many veterans are are, are arriving in territory where they are absolutely confused and lost Plus we know that there is um, what I call operational impact from organizations that can sometimes exacerbate the trauma and confusion that veterans are experiencing. And then the bewildering um, challenges inherent in civilian life, which in many ways I call the next operational um, territory. Um, So my goal for my third book is to try and put everything together in a coherent mapped out sequence between three territories within the military and what's inherent in there and the complexities of that, the transitional space, which is the space between where you leave and have not arrived. And then the place of arriving, which is civilian territory. And my, um, the symbol I've, I've, I've thought about a lot is that of a compass, not a claymore, but a compass. And so it's, it's mapping the territory out and helping individuals to navigate their way through using an internal compass based on an understanding of the demands and the complexities both within the situation and the challenges that they will be facing within themselves uh, that sounds that sounds great uh, and when when do you think
0: uh you're gonna have, to have that book ready for us
1: I'm I'm in an avoidant process at the moment, John. It feels it's like <laughs> it's like my first book. I just went, No, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I backed off for a couple of years till. I hit a wall and it was like I just knew I woke up one day and I was gonna write this. It'd been brewing. And I'm in the same thing, but I know that I've given myself a year to actually sit down and um, and make this happen. Well. So I'm hoping that by the end of this year. I mean, I've taken the step of it's like comrades. I I bought the badge, I bought the mug, I bought the blazer um, before I ran it because that was there was no way I was not going to run and give up those things. So I've contracted with um, a publishing company in the states, um, which is actually um, it's got a um, a veteran on the board, which is why I went with them, and I've paid for um, the self-publishing. So that's that's holding me into doing this um i had a hell of a year last year where i had very little time in my holidays you know fortunately working in a school i have three months of holiday a year and that's when i tend to do a lot of my work so my contract with myself is by the end of um this year that um i'll have the book up and at least sent off to the publishers um to get it going so um there yeah, that's my contract with myself. Yeah, and, and now that's you cut it
0: out on a podcast for everyone to hear, so we're gonna hold you to it. <laughs>
1: uh, okay, thanks for that, John. You've, you've just become my best mate.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like your your buddy who held you to the training yeah. routine. That silver medalist. I mean, I'm no silver medalist, yeah. but <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. hold you to it. So you know, next time uh, or next year around this time, I'm I'm gonna expect to see that on the bookshelves.
1: so yeah, look, it's look, it's an exciting opportunity for me, John, in that. You know, you talked about how, and a lot of people are talking about how PTSD is not helping because the minute we perceive we disordered, you know, we're in a very negative cycle. So people are using post-traumatic stress. Now, you and I having these conversations on LinkedIn, when I sat down yesterday, it hit me again. It was like a bolt, like the pull-through bolt. And what, it sort of was a download in many ways, and it went PMTC, which is Post-Military Transitioning Challenge. And I, that said, wh- this really defines what is facing guys. One, it's post military. Two, it's transitioning. And three, it's not a disorder and it's not necessarily destructive. It's a challenge. And we know veterans like challenges.
0: Right. I love that reframing. Uh, so PMTC, post
1: military transition tran- challenge. Challenge. Yeah. Post military transitioning challenges. And I think in the book, I'm really going to be working with that because it allows veterans to see what lies ahead of them, not as a complex series of traumatic and stressful challenges, but as a challenge to become even more of who you are. I often say, you don't leave a man behind, so how come we leave our warrior behind? Why do we do that? Why do we feel there's no place for our warrior in our journey into civilian life? For me, the warrior the military part of who we are has really important values of respect, mateship, teamship, tribe, self-sacrifice, dependability, reliability, adaptability. You know, these are values that are thin on the ground in civilian life. And so when we go back and collect our warrior to move forward with those aspects of our warrior into our civilian life, we are really facing post military transitioning challenges in a dynamic and exciting way. We need to go back and collect those parts of ourselves to move forward. It's like to move up. You've got to push down on a springboard. You've got to push down to move up to do a somersault. You've got to push against the ground. So the same thing with transitioning challenges is we need to go back to push into the positive parts of who we are to bring them back into combining them with who we wish to be in civilian life. Wow.
0: I, I love that that mental image there too, you know, pushing down to, to go up um, and specifically the springboard. I mean, that's, that's a great analogy and, and definitely one I'm going to have to use in the future.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, John. And you know, the foundation of all of this, the most simplest things for guys to do, you can start straight away, is mindfulness-based stuff with all the Operational ways of explaining how it is one of the finest pull-throughs. The breath work and, you know, breathing is a part of mindfulness. Sure. Yoga has mindfulness. Um, Exercise, again. um, Healthy eating are all mindfulness-based experiences. Mindfulness underlies every single pull-through.
0: Mindfulness underlines every single pull-through. I think that might be the title of this episode. I love it. Yeah. So talking about that, Uh, probably uh, starting to kind of come to an end here, or getting close to the end. What what have we not discussed here, Barry? That you want to make sure that we do discuss for our audience,
1: John? I'll do a quick one. I'll summarize it pretty quickly. Um, I came across. You know, I was constantly searching for ways to. Flow with veterans to allow them to lead into change rather than me telling them what's wrong with them and what tools they're going to use. And there was an approach started by a guy called David Grand in in your part of the world called brain spotting. And the theory behind, well, the, the statement behind brain spotting is that if you think you know what someone needs, you've made your first mistake. What we need is a mindful attunement which allows the brain. To bring to the surface what it needs. We simply walk with, observe, and participate with the natural journey of the brain and the body in a person's healing process. Now if you look at people you've worked with, John, and, and, and look at having conversations with your wife and, and, and your friends, you'll notice that when often people are thinking or dealing with situations, their eye goes somewhere. It'll look up or down, left or right, but it goes somewhere. And David pointed out that where the brain goes, the eye goes, and where the eye goes, the brain goes. So the, the eye spot is basically a line of fire between your OP and your ambush zone. It connects the front of the brain with the back of the brain and allows the body and the brain to naturally tune in to the deeper stuff we struggle to get to. And so how it works with veterans is I'll go, hey, listen, mate, I noticed when you were talking about that incident on a patrol in Afghanistan that your eye was focused on a position in my room. Are you aware of where that was? And you'll go, you go, yeah, I was actually looking at the bottom of that chair and what I'll do from there at a simple level is say, look, do me a favor. That place is where your brain is allowing itself naturally to access whatever the brain wishes to bring up in a natural way. We don't have to push it. And I'll go, I just like you to hold that position. Don't worry about looking at me, hold that. And let's, adopt a mindful place where we become observers into what's going to come up, we don't have to push it. And the guy will hold that and you go, wow, this will come up and I go, okay, stay with it and see what comes up. So what I've learned to do through the brain spotting is and what I've understood with brain spotting, it is an absolute experience of mindfulness, where both the person I'm sitting with and myself A tune in using a bit of neuroscience, the brain spot, into allowing access to the deeper parts of our brain which are not accessible by conversation, and we sit mindfully observant of what the brain is gonna bring up. I no longer need to do things which I don't like doing, which is throwing guys into the ambush zones. We are going to go into the worst part of your experience. We become participant observers combining neuroscience and the brain and the body, and allow the brain to reveal itself and heal naturally so that's the thing i haven't talked about and for all of you out there i'd strongly suggest you look at brain spotting it is not a modality it is a tool you could be a doctor you could be a physiotherapist you could be a cbt-based practitioner you could be a mindfulness-based practitioner be aware of where the eye goes that's all well so
0: you said it is not a tool or sorry it's not a modality it's, it's a tool
1: it's, not a, it's a tool to be used in whatever you're using now so it's like um, mindfulness it's your pull through tools but okay. just be aware of where the person's eye goes because that's the brain finding a position where it allows access to the deeper parts which is in the back of the brain deep in the limbic system in a natural way that's a very simple level but for all the clinicians out there, just be aware of where people's eyes go because we miss it. We always pull people back into focusing on us. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh,
0: it I is, am, John. I have it's to do profound. Some research
1: on that. Very interesting. Yeah. It's profound. And it's mindfulness in movement because mindfulness is the ability to sit quietly and breathe and become an observer of what is going to come up. We are not forcing it or dragging it out. Beautiful. Yeah. Barry, my this fun. has
0: been this has been awesome, uh, highly educational, um, and and a lot of fun with you. So I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, any plans to come to the states anytime?
1: Yeah, my my, <laughs> my wife wants to go to Disneyland. <laughs> I do not. Go to Disneyland. She just has this. So um you know I, i've said um that uh yeah perhaps there's a plan to come to states and as part of the disney experience um you know get to meet you um i i spent time <laughs> i
0: don't think we meeting, should be in the same sentence but, meeting me in disney <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: my wife could go to mickey mouse and i'll, I'll come and hang out with you so uh, like there's there's certainly there's certainly the potential um to do it at one point yeah we'd we'd actually love to come to america we'd love to do a cruise um, from there, um, so it's on the cards, um, in a few years time. Yep. Well, excellent. Uh,
0: you know, assuming that, uh, my wife and kids and I are still living here in the States, if you do make it over here, we'd love to see you and vice versa. If we make it out to Australia, uh, we'll, uh, we'll hope to see you in some, some form or fashion. Um, great conversation. Good. I love the, you know, discussing the, the walls that you hit in the marathon and, uh, in the comrades. And how you tough through that, and how you know you related that to mindfulness, I love your reframing of uh you know the transition and the stress that we go through with uh post military transition challenge p m t c uh and then the mapping of the three territories as you're in the military as you're transitioning out of the military, and then once you are out in the civilian world so it's uh, it's been phenomenal having you on here with uh with me, Barry. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I know that your story is going to
1: resonate with our listeners. Yeah, and thank you, John, for the opportunity just to share something I feel passionate about and that I hope will impact on professionals working with veterans that they become and become more willing to be attuned to their territory and their language.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. For our listeners, thank you for listening to the show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. And we are on social media. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Twitter. You know what? That reminds me, I normally ask, how, how do people get a hold of you, Barry, if they're uh, looking to get a hold of you?
1: Look, my website needs to be cleaned up a little bit. <laughs> but um, if they go to www.barryzwarestein, that's B A R R Y Z W O R E S T I N E dot com, dot think. But if they Google me, they'll get the website and there are links there to connect with me. Also, LinkedIn is probably the way I, I really use the most at the moment. Um, folk are always – I'm happy for folk to connect with me through LinkedIn as well.
0: Excellent. That's how we linked, uh, uh, linked up yeah. on LinkedIn. Yeah, so. per-
1: yeah, yeah, correct.
0: So there you go. Uh, I'll go back into my, my exit spiel there. So if you are looking for Veterans Path or you're looking for Barry, we are on social media. And remember, listeners, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.